This is Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. Uh, but off the top in this hour, certainly coming on the heels of yesterday's big developments in the Conservative leadership race, uh, a focus on where the Conservative Party is going and what the Conservative Party stands for. Moreover, what does Canadian conservatism represent? Is the Conservative Party meant to be a vehicle for conservatism? I think to some extent it is. So what does that entail? In this leadership race, I think we've got a lot of different visions of what that entails. And I mean, obviously, we've got the Harper years to look at as, as a bit of a guide as to how conservatives would govern. But obviously, you know, Stephen Harper left a mark and leaves a big void. And so I think there is this period of uncertainty where maybe we don't really know what the conservative party stands for. Uh, anyway, uh, our colleague Matt Gurney with AM640 in Toronto has a really interesting piece up. Uh, you can find it at globalnews.ca, a commentary piece on kind of the path forward for conservatives and maybe the issues that they really need to focus on that perhaps the liberals haven't been focusing on or are weak on, the conservatives can really seize on. Joining us uh, for some more thoughts is the aforementioned Matt Gurney. Matt, great to have you with us. Anytime. Good to be here. Of course, we got, what, a dozen plus people running in the conservative leadership race trying to do the same thing. Talk about ideas and a path to victory. That race got really kind of weird and interesting yesterday. Just some thoughts on that. Um, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. I mean, I've been working on an essay about the departure of uh, Kevin O'Leary now. In fact, uh, just what, when you guys called me to get me on the line, I was literally working on it. I, I found the whole O'Leary phenomena strange. Um, you know, I'm, I am by no means a hater of Kevin O'Leary, and a lot of what I'm about to say is going to make it sound like I am, but I, I promise I'm not. I, I respect his business acumen. I, I respect his salesmanship, and I respect his ability as a. Um, I call him in my in my upcoming essay a pop culture capitalist. Like he, you know, he goes on uh, TV, he goes on reality shows, he does media commentary on TV and radio, and uh, writes a bit occasionally too. I think he's great in that role. I just don't have the slightest idea why he ever tried to get into politics. And you know, the thing that frustrates me a little bit about O'Leary and all the attention he took out of the campaign is that you know O'Leary portrays himself as a business guy, as uh, the man who'll bring entrepreneurial zeal and financial know-how to politics. And I, I think there is a certain appeal to that. And you've seen that with interest in his campaign. You've certainly seen it in, in the United States. The problem is, I know self-made entrepreneurs. I know people who've been successful in the financial world. I know people who have been actual, genuine business successes. And none of them approach anything they do with the kind of half-assed tokenism <laughs> laziness that O'Leary approached politics with. So if this is the Kevin O'Leary approach to anything, I'm, I'm glad he's not even going to be close to potentially ever having political power in my country. Well, I mean, here's the thing, though. If he had some, some really genuinely bold ideas about where Canada needs to go, where the Conservative Party needs to go, perhaps we would mourn his exit from the race. I yeah. don't know what he brought to the table other than, you know, a lot of bluster. A lot, and he can be very candid. Sometimes that's good. But it almost seems these days, and maybe it's the spillover of the Trump effect, your, your conservatism is defined by how brash you can be and how outspoken you can be. Yep. There's definitely some of that. And, you know, even to your point about if he had bothered to bring some policies, to, to the extent that he brought any policies, they were, I guess we could politely say, a little bit of uh, out of step with the conservative mainstream. I mean, this is a guy who wanted to uh, expand CBC news programming on the Internet, radio, and TV. Look, I'm not a CBC hater. We can have that conversation. But certainly it's a little bit outside the Canadian political norm. He's a guy who thought the best role 
for our military was peacekeeping and that we should stay out of wars. That is, again, a defensible position. It is just not one you often hear embraced by conservatives. And you kind of go on and on down a list. Um, so to the extent he raised any interesting proposals, they were only interesting because he was raising them as a conservative as a, except, uh, and not as a, uh, a liberal, as those policies would probably be more broadly accepted. Well, and, and certainly his, his absence will be noticed, and it gives us more of an opportunity to focus on who's left and where they're going to take the party and what kind of a future the party has. Because part of what you talk about in your piece this week was this event you were at in Toronto this week. Now, I spoke with Scott Gilmore from McLean's Magazine on, on my program a little while ago. The notion that maybe the Conservatives as, a, as an entity don't have a future. So what, what, what did you hear, Tuesday, or third, I guess it was Tuesday night, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was uh, Tuesday night here in uh, Toronto, uh, a bar uh, that we rented out. And honestly, like I joke with Scott, you know, he had me at bar um, when he was putting on an event. I was like, yeah, I'll be there. Uh, But no, yeah, I mean, it's part of his new conservative dinner tour. And he started in Halifax and he came to next to Toronto and he's uh, moving out more towards uh, your part of the country now, working his way west. The idea is to kind of get together and debate the future of the conservative party. And he, he proposed a very controversial starting point to that conversation in a column he wrote for McLean's magazine. Uh, I guess it was last month now. Maybe it was earlier this month. Sorry, I, I've lost the ability to track time since I had children. <laughs> um, so it was recently, in, in any case. And he had said maybe it's time to actually blow up the conservative party and you know kind of have it go... One way you can have kind of a social conservative, nationalist, populist party, and you can also have more of an ideas-driven, progressive, moderate party, you know, more progressive on issues of uh, climate change and uh, gay rights, things like that. The visit, you know, and you you heard, I I certainly think there was a friendly crowd for that in Toronto, but the point I went there to make was different than that. It was that first of all, I said I don't agree with the notion of blowing up the party, and as a, I, I want to be clear, I am not a member of the Conservative Party of Canada. You know, my my work in journalism, I'm an opinion guy. I'm allowed to show my biases, but I still don't think it's appropriate for me to be actually contributing to the political process when I'm expected to give at least fair coverage, not necessarily neutral, but fair coverage of the system as a whole. So I am a conservative voter generally because I'm a right-wing guy, but I'm not involved with the party. So I I put out that disclaimer to him as I I did to you. But I I still think that this is a party that could win. And I I don't support the idea of blowing it up because – even when you have policy differences, I mean, the conservatives have a head start in things like fundraising and supporter lists and databases, and that stuff ain't easy to replace. So I think blowing up a political party should always be an option of last resort. But I think the party needs to figure out pretty quickly what it actually stands for. And one of the points I made at the event, and Scott Gilmore swore before I did, so I felt emboldened to do the same. I won't, I won't pollute your airwaves with that. Okay. Is I said, I don't have the first idea what the the party actually stands for. Like, rock-bottom principles, I don't know anymore what the Conservative Party stands for. I know what it, it would say it stands for, and I think if you were to ask the Conservative Party uh, hierarchy, you know, elected MPs, party officials, if you ask them what they did stand for, I'm sure they could rattle off a laundry list of items. But the problem is, when you look at the, the record in office under Stephen Harper, and then when you look at some of what's being proposed on the leadership trail, even things you would accept as a pretty fundamental starting point for any conservative party don't always have the widespread acceptance you would expect. And you often hear of 
policies that are not just weird for a conservative party, but that don't make any sense. I mean, I, I raised the point that the party that killed the Canadian Wheat Board, and I think justifiably so, and bragged about killing the Canadian Wheat Board to liberalize trade and make food cheaper and allow Canadian farmers to compete in a fair free market system, is the exact same party that is bragging about its defense of Canadian dairy protectionism. Yeah. At a certain point, I just throw up my hands and I'm like, guys, I don't know what the hell you're doing. Well, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, uh Part part of that stems from the, the the control I think that Harper exerted over the direction of the party, right? And and it was at times often cynical, I think, in terms of what they felt they needed to do. Uh, and and the other side of it is we've got a a, a wide open leadership race where you've got uh, Maxime Bernier, you've got Kelly yep. Leach, you've got Michael Chong, you got Lisa Ray, just to name a few. I mean, I'm leaving out some people, but it just sort of represents this kind of broad spectrum of ideas you have right now in the leadership race. So the the void created by Harper leaving and the different candidates you've got running. You know, it creates a sense of confusion about where this party's going. Yeah, and I think we're not really even hearing much in the way of messaging about where it should be going. I mean, what should a, a modern 21st century Canadian Conservative Party stand for? I personally don't think this is nearly as hard as Conservatives are making it. I think it's much easier to answer some of these questions than they sometimes do. And I think a bit of a hangover, as you were alluding to, to the Stephen Harper days, and I'm not a Harper hater at all. I, I voted for him several times. I, I don't regret having done so. Uh, but I think the party became so obsessed with tactical-level maneuvers, really nitty-gritty single policy positions aimed at a very specific subset of the population, I think they dropped the ball on some of the big-picture stuff. And I think, arguably, they might have forgotten about it at all. So, you know, an example I raise in my column, and I raised it in my remarks in Toronto on Tuesday as well, is the idea that you had a conservative party that used with some success i mean let's let's give credit where it's due they use this successfully in elections tiny targeted tax credits to appeal to very tiny targeted groups of voters okay that can work politically but wouldn't the conservative thing to do be to actually make the tax code simpler and it's not like they had to start from scratch on this there were tons of plans put out by for example, the Fraser Institute talking about let's take dozens of tax credits and they each are worth a few hundred billion bucks, add them all together, kill them all, you'd save the government a ton of money, and the government could use that money to give dramatic tax cuts for virtually every Canadian. And for the government, it would break even. That's a conservative policy. People have more money in their, in their pocket, or at the very least, they break even. Oh, and guess what? The tax code becomes simpler and more efficient. That's the sort of thing that a conservative party could do. You could do it with the criminal code. You can come out and say, look, we're not just going to keep layering on tweaks to existing laws, which is how you remember the case of the so-called zombie law that ended up blowing up a murder verdict. Let's clean up the criminal code, and let's actually focus it in pers- real properly and precisely, I think, on violent criminals, particularly repeat offenders, and let's loosen up on the war against drugs and uh, so-called victimless crimes or even white-collar crimes. They could have been really bold and ambitious on that, but they weren't. Someone could finally say, we are going to be the Canadian party that takes the military seriously, and someone could actually be the first person in Canadian history outside of wartime to mean it and follow through on that. Instead, we got a bunch of photo ops. And I even was writing about this, Rob, before the last election, where I said, if the Conservatives lose this thing, they're going to have a really hard time figuring out what they stand for. Because a lot of the easy things they could claim to stand for, their record in office shows that they don't. 
You touch on trade in your column, too, and I think that's a big one, especially look at what's going on right now. We need a strong voice for free and open trade. And what, you know, the conservatives, for all their faults that you talk about, they have a very strong and consistent record. Well, maybe supply management aside, but you look at the original yeah. free trade agreement, NAFTA, uh, the European free trade agreement, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which has kind of yeah. fallen apart, but they certainly pushed us in that direction. Down the list, uh, I think certainly they've got a lot more checks in their column than, than the liberals can claim to. They do, but they also have some weird X's in the column. And you've mentioned supply management. And you're, you're absolutely right. And I, mean, I do note in, in my column for Global that this is something where the, uh, the conservatives, especially under Stephen Harper, can genuinely take some pride. They did push as hard as possible uh, a free trade agenda. That's a big check mark. But then there's that X in there. But they always did it with one hand tied behind their back because they did it while protecting certain key Canadian industries, uh, telecommunications and the dairy, dairy farms being one of them here. So even that one's a bit conflicted. But if you actually do look at the conservative record and you're a conservative and you're looking for a bright spot, I would say their work on international trade, the weird protectionist hangover notwithstanding, is one of the brighter spots on their record for sure. Right. And I think that's an opportunity to build on because, you know, we saw even under Trudeau and the Trans-Pacific Partnership, them really, you know, waffle on whether they were going to get behind that. And there's a lot of inconsistencies when it comes to the liberals and free trade. And I think Canadians are getting an opportunity right now uh, to see how important that is and to have a party that really, truly represents that. I mean, so that's a big issue. But, you know, going forward, I think there's there's a notion of the question of how long-term this project is, is the 2019 election up for grabs, and is this a short-term turnaround for the Conservatives, or is this more of a, a long game, do you think? Ooh, that, that's a tough question. I would have said before, and I did say to several uh, prominent you know, Conservative caucus members that I know personally and that I'm friends with, I told them after the election, I think the bad news is that Trudeau's here to stay for a while, but I think the good news is, for you, from your perspective, that gives you 8 to 12 years to figure out what to do next. I'm not as convinced as I was before that Trudeau has a lot of staying power, though. Certainly he, he's popular. His uh, polling remains high, especially among young Canadians. We haven't seen a lot of attrition there, including, you know, if, honestly, Rob, if we look at some of the seat modeling here, Trudeau could even win a bigger majority today than he did last time, uh, depending on which poll in particular you're looking at. But I think this is a government that is almost aging at a rapid rate here. I mean, they have already had a number of uh, significant flops, electoral reform obviously being one of them. They're not doing well on the trade front. They are gutting the military right at the moment that our American and European allies are calling for more Canadian contributions. So I don't know if any of these things have really slowed them down much. But I certainly see baggage accumulating much, much faster than I expected it to be. It hasn't hit them yet. They're still able to keep going. But I think, is 2019 in play? I don't know. I would be surprised by that. But I, could, I wouldn't be shocked if you were to tell me that in 2019 the Conservatives do really well, uh, take that chip off the Liberal shoulder a little bit, and then compete the next election really, really hard. I could buy that. However, though, I mean, t- to make the obvious point, We'll find out in about a month, just under a month actually today, uh, who the next Conservative Party leader will be. And then we should talk again, because I think then we'll have a better idea where this thing will go. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, in the meantime, uh, as mentioned, people can find your piece. It's up at globalnews.ca. Matt Gurney, thanks for your time here today. Appreciate it. Always have time for you. Take care. All right, thanks. There you go. Matt Gurney uh, with AM640 in Toronto, globalnews.ca. Uh, so some interesting thoughts from him on maybe the issues the Conservatives ought to focus on going forward.
you know, like I, like I say, some of you may have some some different suggestions, and certainly as we've seen with some of the leadership candidates, uh, they are prioritizing certain issues over others. Uh, hey, by the way, some interesting news here this afternoon. Uh, we talked a lot about what happened on that United flight. What was it Flight 3411, if I'm not mistaken, Chicago to Louisville. Passenger dragged off the plane by security in a pretty ugly episode. A lot of people thought at the time, uh, that guy's going to get paid. You guys got a payday coming soon. And if you thought that, well, guess what? You were right. Word this afternoon that United has reached a, quote, amicable settlement with that uh, dragged passenger. Uh, We also learned today uh, United's now talking about upping that amount, the maximum amount they would pay out to somebody who voluntarily gets off a flight, raising that limit maybe all the way up to $10,000. A lot of people said about that flight, if you wanted volunteers, don't stop at $800. You could make it a couple thousand even. I'm sure a lot of hands would have gone up. So I think United's looking to address that side of it too. 403-974-8255 is our number. We're back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.